it'll be visceral. It'll be like a noise rock. This will be like a youth code record for a moment. Welcome to Watching Movies at the Bar, a podcast about philosophy, about lyricism, about America. My name is Thomas, and uh, I am joined, as always, by my co-host, Bethy Squires. Bethy, how's it going? <laughs> hey, Thomas. How's it going? Good. Did that throw you for a loop? Uh, you went off book, and I <laughs> it flipped my wig for a second, but then I was like, no, you're right. This is about values <laughs> and about... Uh, lethality and the banality of evil and about real tight t-shirts and i'm all here for it hell yeah well i I hope that's not too much of a spoiler for the listeners before we get into that we are joined by a guest i'm so excited about tonight uh we've we've got kevin costello who is an incredible screenwriter really good friend all around rock dog kevin welcome to the podcast hey thanks guys cheers i got a big beer here um (laughs) that i'm drinking for the uh, for the podcast, and it's actually this is one and a half beers in a big glass. What so. kind of beer is that? Uh, it's a Rothhaus Pilsner from from Germany. Um, very light and refreshing. It's a perfect summer beer. Good um, check check them out at Cap and Cork um, <laughs> at uh, Hillhurst and Prospect. They're they're stocked up. You're al- you're already one of the best sports we've had on the podcast. Coming on with your giant fucking beer, you seem relaxed, like you're leaned back in a bar booth. Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is this is my favorite sort of conceptual thing to do, which is have a couple beers and talk about a movie. So I'm super psyched. I'm feeling in, in my element and uh, grateful to be here. Thank you guys for having me. Kevin, I think the first time that I met you actually was in a post-movie bar talk. We had all gone to see a film together and then um, half of us, I think, fucked off to Jay's bar and had a good hang sesh. Yes, yes, that is, uh, Jay's is like, that was, man, what a time and a place when you could go to the Arclight and then write, write to Jay's and, and talk about stuff at, 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 at Jay's bar. Um, I, I miss it dearly and, um, I find, you know, having a beer or two and just sort of like talking with my buds after a movie is like how I work out how I feel about something usually, like on a first blush. Mm-hmm. So, um, it's always just good to like sort of get it flowing and kind of like loosen up and, and, uh, I, yeah, it's my absolute favorite thing to do. I would say second only to, uh, maybe having coffee and watching movies. That's pretty cool too, but, uh, <laughs> that's a, that's a different style, I guess. We're really syncing up tonight. I feel the same way. I also recall that particular Jay's night is one of the best nights I had in 2020. I think that mm-hmm. was like late January. And then we had a little lull where we uh, took the entire world for granted and then everything went to <laughs> shit. But uh, that was super fun and also makes me think, I think this comes up on the pod a lot, but Jay's typically has my favorite kind of bar movie viewing experience because they always have some random TCM shit on these corner right. TVs. And yes. my attention will often wander to whatever they're showing. 
Absolutely. Yeah. And like, it's usually like the other TV is playing sports or something like that. Like they're kind of like splitting the difference, best of both worlds, but it's a fun thing to like watch, you know, to just sort of passively receive something that you don't know what it is and trying to sort of like figure out like, okay, well that's whatever, Audrey Hepburn, like who, who am I looking at? Like what movie is this? Like playing that game. Um, and I'm a dumb guy too. I'm, I'm not one of these like smart movie people that you guys have, have, have on uh, the podcast all the time, but, uh, I love doing that. And I love just sort of like, I don't know, I'm a, I'm a big believer in movies as a sort of like, um, passive media you know not not all the time but like i i like having them on like in the background and you know when when i'm working or at a bar and just sort of like passively and subliminally like receiving these messages as you're sort of like engaged and sort of like half watching and but still following along i feel like um you know a movie's power is boundless and it's obviously maybe not the best way to see something for the first time but like i have I don't know. I have a lot of like good memories of like watching weird things at a bar, like weird things being on at the bar and creating a moment or a sort of conversation. Um, so, so yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm a big believer in uh, the concept area of, of what you guys are talking about for sure. Bethy actually uh, may have had a, a bar viewing experience today that warrants mentioning. Yeah, um I guess first I want to ask Thomas what are you drinking tonight? Oh, I am uh I'm I'm returning to my roots. If you if you listen to episodes of this show, I historically have been drinking canned margaritas and I am doing that tonight. <laughs> Thank you to Cutwater, a company that does not give us money but should. Yet. They're going to figure it out. They'll get there. Give us $50. I see what you're selling these units for. It's it's bullshit. Fucking Terramana tequila gave me one tiny bottle, and I won't shut up about it. So think about the return <laughs> on investment. Was that your get. Applebee's The Rock gift set? Yeah, it was. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still drinking the Curacao out of it. I used the Curacao from my Applebee's tequila to make the drink for the Poison Ivy, an alcohol that I made up for a Batman and Robin episode that came out <laughs> last week. Hell yeah. Bethy, your hat trick today. The most deranged hat trick. <laughs> so you're having uh, one and a half beers. You're having a canned margarita. I'm having seltzer because in, you know, technically in the grand scheme of things, I am, I guess, five drinks in tonight already. <laughs> that rocks. Uh, That's very cool. I had an early dinner at HMS Bounty. HMS Bethy. So that's something <laughs> Thomas and and um, Thomas's special lady, Steph, uh, both texted me. We're calling you HMS Bethy now. <laughs> 30 seconds in like between each other. And then I was like, you guys both text me that. And Steph was like, what? We're not speaking right now. I don't know why we both <laughs> sent that. We were sitting across the room, but it wasn't a coordinated <laughs> effort. <laughs> no idea. So HMS Bethy was at her spot having an early dinner of a Monte Cristo and a side salad, just like normal, normal human food to have (laughs) at like five 30 in the afternoon. Absolutely. Um, and I was, I wasn't given the remote. I just took the remote and I put on, um, the, I put on, it just said fantastic four was what was playing on sci-fi. And we spent, Mm. I don't know, five minutes waiting for, even one celebrity face to show up so he could find out whether this was 
old Fantastic Four with Jessica Alba or new Fantastic Four with Kate Mara. To be fair, if you watch the Kate Mara one, Tim Heidecker would be on screen for the first four minutes, and that is an <laughs> unmissable Hollywood performance. Beyond that, it's not worth anyone's time. <laughs> well, mm-hmm. this was this was the old one with Michael Chiklis as Ben Grimm and Carrie Washington <laughs> as a blind oh, woman. Yeah. <laughs> I don't remember that aspect. I, I remember so little of that movie. I feel like watching it, HMS Pattern would be the perfect reintroduction to what is even happening in it. Uh, I remember thinking that it was spirited fun when i when i saw it back back then i saw it in theaters and i was like i don't remember a a damn thing of this movie i don't know what is going on (laughs) but we watched maybe i don't know the last half hour of that and then switched to despicable me three um a movie i've never seen uh, our producer slash my husband colin is a huge fan of the minions movie (laughs) Because it's actually just, like, pretty good slapstick, like, French, like, broad comedy. It's just, it's a fun time. Absolutely. I'm I'm a, I'm a minion believer. I, they're, like, unironically, like, I love those little guys. And if they're getting up to any sort of trouble or adventure, like, I'm on board. So, I mean, Banana. 100%. Yeah, Sorry, yes, absolutely. If we're talking minions, I can't not uh, tell our listeners how I first saw that movie. That movie came out... Within the same month as Noah Baumbach's uh, Mistress America, and I did a double feature, because at the time, I was living 60 miles from a movie theater where I could see anything I wanted to see, and so I was like, I'm going to see Mistress America, and then I'm going to see Minions, and it was a good shot chaser situation. It sounds like you were watching movies alphabetically that year or something, you went like... (laughs) M-I-S and then M-I-N. So you're going backwards, but still in order. Just like, that's the only way I would ever pair those two movies. Yeah, it's yeah. a cool strategy. My brain's a fucked up computer, man. <laughs> <laughs> so we watched that, and then the other TV had Gladiator on. So we were like switching our attention back oh. and forth. Wow. So it was, it was a Steve Harvey family feud on one television, and then <laughs> Despicable Me 3, and then Gladiator. Meanwhile, the bartender is like squeezing my husband's love handles and asking me when we're going to have children. Me and my husband. <laughs> What's the answer, Bethy? Uh, when the world doesn't seem like it's on the verge of climate collapse. Or we will just adopt many climate orphans because we have a feeling those are coming. So we're just going to rake them in. That's our plan right now, honestly, for children is to wait for climate orphans and then just grab some. I don't know. Oh, that's going to be awesome. Yeah, yeah. They're going to love L.A. I think collecting climate orphans is sort of your best shot at having a gaggle of minions yourself, so it's it's <laughs> worth doing. Yeah, they can do my bidding. So that's been my afternoon or evening. That's amazing. Yeah, I just kind of was uh, working today. But uh, it, I, I feel so natural doing a podcast with Kevin because Kevin and I have been uh, repeat guests on screen drafts most recently poisoning everyone's brains with uh takes on video game cinema <laughs> yeah yeah that 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 was fun um it, it was kind of a hard a hard thing to like wrap my head around like i i felt like depressed when it was over like in a way that i just like binge drinked like uh schnapps or something <laughs> like that like I, I just felt sick to my stomach and I was like, I don't know if I like movies anymore. I needed to like read, I needed to read a book or something and then, and then get back into it. But I'm back. I'm all the way back, baby. I'm, I'm loving movies again. Um, 
But uh, yeah, watching the entire Resident Evil franchise in one day definitely <laughs> sort of was like a smoke the whole pack of cigarettes when your dad catches you type type situation uh, and self inflicted at that. So um, yeah, I learned a lot of things about myself, but uh, I'm excited to be talking about, uh, you know, an actual sort of uh, all time uh, classic today um, and uh, not the Final Fantasy movie. Is that why you brought us such a thinker of a film? Is that you wanted to like give yourself like a clean eating moment, like a let's let's build the suspense a little longer. <laughs> yes, let's entertain this line of inquiry, but let's not say what the movie is yet. Mm-mm. Yeah, no, you'll no, never know. Not. It's not like you can see it on whatever podcatcher you have right now. It's a secret. But yeah, That's sorry right. to interrupt, Kevin. That question. What question? I'm sorry, Thomas. I'm... <laughs> oh, I was just wondering if part of the reason why you picked the movie you picked, which we are not saying because that's part of the game now, uh, is because you needed something that was like more austere, cerebral, good to talk yes, about I- the podcast. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I, I was sort of like, I, I need to sort of engage my brain in a more, um, lyrical way. And, uh, and I'm sure that I'll have lots of cool, like interesting, like, uh, uh deep things to say about this because there's so much to talk about. And, uh, and unfortunately, like watching it through, I thought most of my thoughts are like, haha, that's, that's, that's funny or, or, or weird <laughs> choice. Um, and, uh, just sort of throwing my hands up in the air because it's like, the kind of movie magic that's just kind of hard to intellectualize sometimes the way that it works. So, um, uh, everything that I have to say is, uh, uh, on a weird sort of like subjective level, I think, because it's, it's one of those movies that just has so many amazing choices in it, uh, that, uh, it's, it's just, it's, it's, it's amazing to me that it exists, I guess. And that's that's kind of how I prefer to talk about movies at the bar. I think I prefer to lead with my gut and just talk about a way that a thing feels, and then I find my way into something else. But uh, I love this movie, and if we were better at curating series earlier on in the pod, we could have lumped this in with another title, um, which is also in my favorite subgenre of movies, which is uh, films about charismatic garbage men who take local <laughs> teens on a wild unforgettable ride uh would have played well with Ernest scared stupid but tonight we are talking about terrence malick's debut 1973 badlands hell yes one of the best uh weird garbage man movies of all time (laughs) uh i would love that series based on a historical garbage man Yes, based on historical garbage man uh, inspired by uh, by real life killers and turned into a weird dreamlike fairy tale that is uh, funny and idiosyncratic and, and disturbing and uh, all of the things that a good movie can be like all all at once uh, in a way that feels like it was inventing a tone that just had never existed in cinematic language before and I don't know uh how many people you can really say that about how many movies you can really say that about and um in my mind anyways i don't i don't know if anything's come close to uh in a contemporary way like making me feel the way this movie saw uh, the the way i felt when i first saw this movie um and which was like you know in college and probably went out to a bar right afterwards because all of our 
film history screenings were at night and everyone in the class would go get a beer afterwards and, and talk about it. But I, I, I still remember the night that I, I saw this and I was just so blown away, um, you know, as like a 19 year old and just sort of being like, well, I got to get through all the classics, but this isn't necessarily where my heart lies. And, and seeing something that was like so weird and had such funny choices that felt like, um, you know, were not only silly or, or, or crazy or, you know, designed to like make you have this weird, complicated reaction to what you're watching, but also like so revealing of uh, weird character depth. And, you know, on top of that, it's the story, um, like all of my kind of favorite movies are, I think is, is what I've realized is that I love movies about people like trying to define themselves like through their own narrative and through their own story and trying to self mythologize and like letting that sort of instinct um, drive them and drive the the story choices. Um, and in this case, it's to, you know, the dark heart of the American dream and dressed in weird pop iconography and this weird sort of postmodern pastiche kind of way. It's just all of these elements combining at once in a debut film that, uh, you know, uh, which, you know, we can talk about how crazy the shoot was. I think for everyone involved, there was like a real fly by the seat of their pants type situation. It seemed like Terrence Malick was figuring out how to make a movie on the fly. And it's resulted in something that is so singular and so, uh, beautiful and, and so like deeply, deeply weird and funny in a way that like, um, is so unexpected and feels so modern. Um, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's amazing. It's, it's one of my favorite movies of all time. I love this movie too. I was so excited when this was one of the movies you pitched and even more excited when I ran it by Bethy and she immediately was like, Oh, Badlands. Like, I really dig that movie. Bethy, what's, what's your relationship to Badlands? Um, I think I first saw Badlands when I was working at an independent video store, shout out slash RIP to Plan 9 Video in Bloomington, Indiana. Um, and it was interesting for me, like, my friend Sarah from the Bimbo Summit podcast, this is like a big touchstone movie for her. And I actually texted her before this came up to be like, what do you want to make sure we talk about? And she was like, number one, Holly is the true sociopath. We need to talk about that. And number two, the way Martin Sheen puts on a jean jacket. We're like the two <laughs> main things that we're important for her to talk about. Yeah, with the collar pop, absolutely. Well, and okay. like he like he like flops it over the back of himself because he had a shoulder I- injury. But it has like it works story wise. But apparently I didn't notice because this is also how I put on a jean jacket. So it's like, endemic. Cool. It's like James Dean. Indicting like, to the, the heart coolest of way possible. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> But it does, it It just fills this perfect, it's a perfect daytime movie, a movie to put on in the middle of the day. It's a perfect hangover movie. Oh, yeah. If you're, like, kind of regretting past life choices and want to put something on that uh, will show you some pretty images, but also sort of be an indictment of America and <laughs> and excess and impulsiveness because you want to atone for what you did. This is a perfect movie for that as well. Absolutely. Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. And I think it's like such a visually sort of engrossing movie in a way that is like, you know, this the super film school way of like, you can tell that you could watch this on silent and understand every single beat of of the movie. Uh, Maybe not. Obviously, like you would miss out on stuff uh, like the the, the voiceover and, and aspects 
that um, sort of create the tone, the comic tone of what's happening. But the the story, every single story beat is so, so visually told and all the way up until the end, like the, you, you, you sort of like get the punchline, you get the entire sort of like lyrical road trip journey. So I think that's why I sort of thought about this movie at, at, at first. Um, I've never seen it in a bar, but I feel like it would make a great sort of background bar movie to sort of like have a deep conversation about, uh, y- y- you know, whether or not you should, uh, keep being a garbage man or, uh, if, uh, your friend's gonna eat a dead dog on a $1 dare or, uh, <laughs> I'll give you, you know, $1 have to those, eat this. Have collie. those conversations. I ain't a collar. I think something interesting about the idea of watching this movie in a bar is there's really a blink and you'll miss it vibe to all of the murders that take place. Like, the weight of them is is so small because that's the thing with a gun. It's like truly a split second decision of whether you're going to try and shoot somebody or not. And it has these outsized consequences, but the actual act of killing is so quick and that it really helps. This movie really looks at how quotidian murder can be if that's like the life that you are living and, and how not natural but like it's already over by the time you're worried about whether you should have done it yeah that that's one of the things that really jumped out at me watching the movie this time and it it struck me the first time but i think this time around i knew we'd be recording a podcast so i was like what are words i can say about this and not just feelings that i can feel and um there's this great quote from martin sheen in this big gq oral history um, about this movie that came out around Tree of Life. Really great shit in there. But Martin Sheen was talking about how Malik told him to think of his gun as a magic wand that can solve any problem. And after I read that in hand with my experience of watching the movie, I was so floored. I think that's such a fascinating way to look at a gun contextually here. It's not a weapon, you know, it's it's not a thing about inflicting pain, but a way to just sort of immediately remove obstacles. And you feel that philosophy in the performance. There's this weird, mundane, matter-of-fact quality to the violence that's kind of entrancing. It's like the movie, to me, never quite reaches a point of being overly disturbing because of how understated all of that is, even though it's fucking horrific. Totally. Yeah, it's like, it's it's an amazing, like, magic trick of, of tone and just like the way that it's sort of, uh, I, I mean, just the, the character decision of, uh, it, it seems like the way that uh, Martin Sheen's character, Kit, is like running through the world is kind of like stream of consciousness almost, like he's making up the story as he goes. And the first time, you know, the first murder when he's like, what if I shot you? How'd that be? Like, it, it's sort of like... <laughs> Okay, like, you know, you just sort of keep moving and like the way that it snowballs out and the way that the sort of self um, sort of explanation or like the weird kind of like morality that he starts putting to why he's doing what they're doing, you know, like the kind of he's telling himself this sort of fake story about the guys that come looking for them in the woods were whispering about a bounty. And that means that they all they cared about was money. And so their lives were expendable. And then later he says, you know, well, once, once you're in it and you're playing for keeps, you have to shoot all witnesses. That's just how it works. Like we're in it now we're playing. So it's just like the, the sort of the detached kind of like, uh, moral sort of, uh, uh, reasoning behind, uh, the way that they're sort of like, and, and the reason that, you know, uh, Sissy SpaceX character is sort of like 
the story she's telling herself about what is happening, you know, uh, the sort of weird cosmic kind of like lush romantic adventure aspect of it. It's like, you know, she's able to sort of ignore stuff for a, a long enough point until it, uh, until it becomes unavoidable. And it's, you know, almost like she gets bored or something, but, uh, the absolute like barest like thinnest shred of like a moral like sort of code that's like running throughout and you know not even dramatized sometimes it's just sort of thrown out there by sissy's character sort of like well yeah I'm, you know we we weren't talking about much after this happened and it was weird and, and all, of the, <laughs> all of the strange like rhythms that sort of happen in these scenes of violence with like long walks and just the dread that's sort of hanging over things and and the way that sissy is uh, you know just as off <laughs> as kit is in this movie and uh in a weird sort of just like hey how's it going talking to people as like their lives are clearly threatened and, and they know that they're in mortal danger and she's just sort of like tell me about your spider like you, you know she's she, she's being absolutely uh, uh chillingly weird in a way that like if this was a james bond movie she would definitely be like the the super villain that is like you know kit is like my handsome sort of bodyguard and i'm the one that is just sort of like you know traipsing along and sort of vibe <laughs> vibing to, to this i guess uh in this unknowable uh uh weird way um but yeah, I, I I think that uh, I don't really respond to violent movies that 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 often. I, I feel like I mean I I love plenty of violent movies uh, and extremely violent movies too. But like just in terms of like my visceral sort of like reaction, and I, I, I it's not something I'm into. But I, I feel like the way that it's sort of handled here um, in a sort of like banal, like uh, almost like afterthoughty kind of uh ordinary way that uh it, it hammers home like the brutality but also that the, it, it does feel like this sort of ephemeral kind of like quality to it that is like disturbing and creepy in a cool way that uh a lot of violence on-screen violence necessarily uh isn't yeah i think i i really like you know this line of conversation and and i i like that you know malik doesn't say any of this overtly there's nothing really like ham-fisted or moralizing about this movie he really views these characters with an impartiality but there's something so cool to me about how kid is this character who is aware of protagonists he's aware of myth making he's aware of notions of an american hero and he's internalized these ideas such that he's sort of numb to kind of emotions in consequence and Holly is at this really formative place in her life where she's susceptible to being swept up into that myth secondhand. And so she gradually is interpolated in his weird fantasy. And they're moving through the world as sociopaths with no real awareness of that because they're just, they're, they're caught up in, they're caught up in the kind of movie that Badlands appears to be on the surface, but is referencing in this really cool, subversive way. I, I don't... This is coming back to the issue of I don't always know how to talk about this movie because it is so feeling-oriented, but I think it's really brilliant if you start to compare what it appears to be to what it is and the degree to which these characters are aware of the kinds of things it reflects, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think that... Um you know, Sissy SpaceX narration uh, is is using this like florid language to try and justify the life that they're living, or like the way that uh, Kit keeps like recording 
like he he leaves that recording for uh the cops to find when on on like the 45 <laughs> that he records oh at like the amazing uh and and like or he he uses like the dictaphone at the rich guy's house he's always like laying down these sort of like manifestos but um <laughs> the movie never lets you like buy into the shit they're selling like the movie is always saying no violence is boring and ugly and eventually sort of holly Holly does seem to sort of realize that the life that she's living is boring and ugly. And she just goes, no, I don't want it anymore. <laughs> I I thought I could have fun buying into this like rebel, like lovers against the world riff, but I'm uh, bored and I miss soda. And I think a train <laughs> is fascinating. If I am overawed by the sight of a train, it's time to <laughs> fucking go. <laughs> I can't do it anymore. There's there's a really great there's a really great meta angle here with Martin Sheen in this movie that I think will help us transition back into the tumultuous production which I do want to talk about but when Martin Sheen finally saw the movie he was horrified by Kit's violence uh he didn't quite realize what Malik was doing until it was all said and done he thought of himself uh, is is more of a hero and and more romantic than like the net impact of what the movie is, and that's so cool to me because Malik is kind of like it seems like in the creation of this movie he sort of wanted Martin Sheen to buy into this myth as well that he was sort of consciously subverting the whole time. I just that is so exciting to me, and that's not usually something that uh, directors do to men. If there's enforced method acting where it's like, no, we need them to believe it. it. That's usually something that is done to like the female lead. So that's interesting that it's this it's happening to Martin Sheen in this case instead. That's cool. But he's he's such a great sport. I mean, to this day, he loves the experience he had on this movie. I mean, he said, and I quote, I've worked with Mike Nichols, with Coppola, Scorsese and Spielberg. But Badlands is the film I'm proudest of. I don't mean to denigrate any of the others. It's just the raw facts. So <laughs> even with that bait and switch, he's like, Malik's my guy. He knows, yeah. I do have a question. Is that partially because this is the hottest that Martin Sheen has ever looked? <laughs> is it a <laughs> little bit He looks good. That? Like, I, most of the time, not hugely straight, but I could see risking it all for young Martin Sheen in a tight t-shirt and cowboy boots. I mean, come on. Uh- yeah, well absolutely. I feel like it's something that you can feel the movie straining against almost is his hotness because they, <laughs> they're like, I mean, right out of the gate with the dead dog thing. It's like, it's like, Hey, the very first thing we're going to do with this character is let you know that he is a little like off, like he's super <laughs> off. Like, like, yes, he looks like James Dean. He has the pompadour. He's, he's has the tight t-shirt. Uh, and, uh, he look. I mean, yeah. He looks. He looks absolutely amazing, and he's so so charming in, in this. In a way that, like, you know, Kit believes that he's the hero of his own story, and I think that, you know, Sheen just the sort of chemistry that he has with Sissy Spacek, like, and reading about all of this sort of rehearsal that they did going into this and 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 uh a, a lot of like you know i i believe i read an interview with sheen where he said that there was like multiple weeks of sort of like screen test improv type stuff with sissy and uh and with with holly like i think she was given a lot of um 
opportunity to bring herself and bring her own sort of perspective on who this person is into the character, um, which is something that Sissy Spacek talks a lot about and feeling so valued in in, in that experience, which is cool. And, you know, uh, we keep kind of dancing around the sort of like trouble production stuff, which is, you know, legendary. It's like the stuff that is like, uh, you know, I don't know how problematic like beating the shit out of your producer like on, on set like it's kind of sick. is it's not it's, it's not it's, it's not sick. great <laughs> it's, it's it's cool i mean it's yeah it's cool um but like through all of this stuff the fact that um martin sheen and sissy spacek were like we are ride or die with this guy because like we we trust in like what is happening here and we don't always understand like the decisions he's asking us to make with these characters and there's so many weird little (laughs) idiosyncratic details of just like what are they touching in this rich person's house and like what are they just all of these like little weird details that build up such a vivid and cinematic portrait um in a way that like no other medium can show you a character like this you know i think that's like something that they understood innately that he had this sort of like magical quality that he was like drudging out of them and 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 that that ultimately to me is like the feeling i have about malik and a lot of his uh filmography is that he's just like a a a shaman you know like the way that he sort of conjures these sort of magical um tones is is something that uh i don't know no no one else no one else can do it and what what he does i think and uh it's 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 cool that uh they (laughs) were just willing to sort of like stick by his side through all all of this sort of uh insanity and and shooting way too much film and i'm I'm sure you know they're in every scene i'm sure it was uh as grueling for them um as as it was for everyone involved uh just shooting massive amounts of film and and going way over schedule way over budget etc etc um they 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 knew that he was up to something cool because we're so tap dancing around the bb filled bonfire that was the production of badlands i feel like uh i want to do a quick flyover and then we can kind of break it down and continue to work our way through the movie is that all right yeah go for it amazing so this was malik's first movie and he cobbled together a three hundred thousand dollar production budget from mostly non-industry sources including a bit of his own money from his most recent job which was being a philosophy instructor at mit um (laughs) There's this great quote from Terrence Malick, who is very much a shaman, equally an alien. Um, On leaving academia, he said, quote, I was not a good teacher. I didn't have the sort of edge one should have on the students. So I decided to do something else. I'd always liked movies in a kind of naive way. They seemed no less improbable a career than anything else, Uh, end quote. And so with his first movie, he really leaned into the improbability. Uh, This movie was, as we've said repeatedly, notoriously troubled. Uh, Malik was clashing with department heads left and right. A lot of them quit in the middle of the production. The crew didn't know how to work with him. I mean, in the oral history, he's characterized as being a great director, but not a great communicator. You know, he worked well with the actors because the actors were excited by this guy who was really going with his gut instincts but when people tried to influence him too much and tell him what he could or couldn't do because he was so green, he would stubbornly insist on his way. Um, uh, and, and so once they'd gotten, you know, midway through their shooting days, they thought he was just masturbating. They thought he was shooting nothing. He was too open to improv. He was too open to sort of the whims of the actors. Um, and he really kind of started to lose the crew through that. They just didn't trust him. So like Kevin said, you know, he got into fights with his producers, like, 
fist fights, which I think rocks hard. It's it, it sounds like it was this kind of like Texas rough and tumble thing, and like at least one of them was the product of like a producer talking shit about his wife, and he's like, I you know I won't abide that, but. uh yeah, I mean, they allege he didn't know the, what the word coverage meant on the first day of shooting. Uh, it, it just seems like he was a real feeling-oriented filmmaker who knew what he was doing, but not in a way that he could quite convey to everyone else. But the most notorious aspect of production was when they shot the fire scene. According to the oral history, the stunt assistant triggered the blaze prematurely and the house went up in flames while the crew was inside. So it was supposed to be a controlled burn and it all went at once and people were freaking out and jumping out of windows. And so the strain that was already felt amongst the crew just reached a fucking breaking point and a bunch of people left. Um, the way that a lot of the crew talk about it, they say that when Malik left, he hadn't finished the movie, and they didn't know how he was going to finish the movie. But then they went into the edit, they were there for 10 months, and they emerged with something that somehow coheres and feels like one of the greatest American debuts of all time. <laughs> <laughs> I it's a, it's a crazy movie. Yeah, I was... When I was watching the, the fire scene today, I was thinking about how expensive and unsafe that looked like, <laughs> it looks incredible gorgeous. it looks great it's um, beautiful yeah. but i was like i guess they knew what they were doing because i i was uh i was gonna like uh bone up on the true the true crime and the philosophy aspect and then leave the production side to you thomas and then we can meet in the middle with various levels of expertise so i didn't know about <laughs> some of this stuff that went down during the making of and I'm like okay yeah so the thing the thing I was worried about was exactly what I was worried about. But the thing is, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't seem like Malik was like criminally negligent or like he was an overt asshole. I think he was just in over his head, but he knew the vision that he wanted to execute. And the people around him just weren't always on the same page. Yeah. In it's this the case, stuff that, like, sorry, go ahead. Kevin. Oh yeah. I was just going to say, it's like the sort of thing that as like a film fan or like learning about sort of, especially in the sort of like, man, seventies filmmakers, man, like they were, they were, they were grabbing the bull by the horns, <laughs> doing it their way. And this idealistic sort of like, we're just going to do what we're going to, you know, let unite behind someone's vision and like follow that muse, wherever it takes us. And then when it's like hour 14 of a, you know, 16 hour day and Terrence Malick is like shooting a spider in a jar uh, for hours and hours. And it's, it's like, okay, like I, I, even in the abstract supporting like that sort of idealistic kind of like, we're just going to chase, you know, chase the muse. Like I, I can see how that would be, uh, uh, infuriating, I think, for anyone working like on a crew, uh, like that. Um, but at the same time, it's like, because he was like, Hey, we have to stop and pull over right now. You get that beautiful shot of, um, Martin Sheen, um, with the gun slung over his shoulder and he's sort of holding it like a scarecrow with his arms out, mm -hmm. um, looking out of the storm and it transitions to this like beautiful shot of the moon kind of like right over him. And he's, uh, uh, one of the many, uh, shots in this movie, Martin Sheen, you know, pensively looking at a, at a distant, uh, sort of, uh, drab, but majestic vista. But it's like one of the most powerful, sort of beautiful images in the entire film. And that was because he was like, 
everyone stop. Like we, you know, we're, we, we're wrapped and we're going home, but we're stopping for a few more hours now to get the shot. And so it does result in like magic like that, but it's hard to sort of like, I don't know. I, after I, I, I feel like after being uh, on a couple movie sets, it's like, you don't want to be that guy. That's sort of like, smelling your own ass for for multiple <laughs> hours um and uh i i, I guess uh yeah I, I i i can see how that uh would be infuriating especially for some a first-time filmmaker who is uh you know a philosophy guy from <laughs> mit like what the, it's 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 so funny the just yeah the, the entire he's the most interesting sort of like uh, I, I, I think to me, like in partly because he's so mysterious and doesn't really give interviews and he's out of the public eye. Um, but just like a fascinating figure to me. That's something that like, <laughs> speaking of, speaking of, uh, a philosophy guy from IT, Malik fucking beefed with other philosophy people in the same way that he beefed with like the art department, like with the various departments of this movie. Like he was a Rhodes scholar and he didn't finish his thing at at Oxford because his advisor was like, I don't think you're going to be able to like, what is this draft that you've sent me? I don't get what you're doing and I don't think you're going to be able to finish this. And he was like, fuck you, dad. And he just like left. (laughs) Like, there, this there is, is just who he is. <laughs> yeah, there are so many instances of Malik just knowing what he was doing, not really getting the support and kind of walking away. Like when I hear some of these production anecdotes, I think of like Paul Thomas Anderson when he's like in his 20s making a movie like Boogie Nights and he's like pitching the script and people are like, I don't really get this. Do you want to make this change? Do you want to make that change? And he's like, no, fuck you. I know what I'm doing. I'm making this fucking movie. And like that, you know, in a way rules and has paid off because he's only made great movies, but it seems kind of like Malik was a little bit more passive. He was kind of like, you know, I know, I know what I want. Uh, I'm a little soft spoken. I'm not going to bull you guys over, but yeah, I, I, I know it's right. There, there's one other production anecdote in line with that that kills me, which is a lot of times when we talk about voiceover in movies now, we talk about it as uh, a fix as being contemporaneous to reshoots as being something that is concocted during ADR sessions to plug holes that are sort of missing in story and character. And when they were making this movie, when they were in the edit, they didn't know why Malik wanted to do so much VO. And there were producers who thought that he was being overly expository because the movie wasn't complete. And he just quietly was like, no, I know what I'm doing. And when you watch it now, Every bit of VO in this movie is impeccable. The way it pairs with these sweeping images really informs who he would become as a filmmaker. It's just there's something really special about someone who fully understands their vision, even if other people don't. It's always that balance of like, how much do you want to be the crazy genius who is so certain in your exact vision and how much you want to be a good co-worker I guess is like the balance like I've definitely had moments where I feel I I one, one time one time I texted my editor and I was like I'm worried I'm never actually gonna write anything great because I turn in every draft on time and she was like haha wow that sucks for you but she likes that I just turn it in on time. She doesn't care. So I like doesn't feel impelled to reassure you. No, yeah, like, yeah. it's just like not part of her vision at all. 
Um, so it's that, you know, do you want to be an artist or do you want to be a fellow worker? Is Or do I? Am I asking for myself? Discuss. <laughs> I mean, Malik apologized by disappearing for a long time <laughs> between Days of Heaven and Thin Red Line. Literally just like disappeared to Europe. No one heard from him. No press, no communication. Could have been dead. And I think he just like, he, he just really believed in this story in a way that like he understood how integral the VO was going to be to the tone. I think like it's all so perfectly written and like, you know, you look at, um, uh, Days of Heaven, which is his kind of follow up and there's a lot of VO in that too. And I think the VO in Days of Heaven is much more abstract and sort of like lyrical, poetical, whereas this is like, it's performing a very real sort of character function of any time that there's, expository dumps or i mean they're they're not dumps like they're it's it's surprising to me that there are like holes in the movie because like i'm I'm left wanting for for nothing and any time that um holly is doing her voiceover it's always sort of like letting us understand her point of view on what her situation is which um is wildly different from what ours is watching this unfold and like so much of like the comedy and like the sort of like playful sort of you know dreamlike kind of storybook tone um that she brings to it is in direct opposition to like what we're seeing in a way that creates these like very strong contrasts and are extremely funny um and uh, especially in the ways when you know when they get into the woods and they have their entire uh, uh, Robinson Crusoe kind of like set piece like out in the woods. It's so, so weird and whimsical, but she's also like starting to feel like maybe this was not a great idea and maybe this guy doesn't know what he's doing. And she's sort of like talking in this playful way where it's like, this is fate and I'm communing with nature and this is all really special, but I also kind of want to see this guy drown. And it's like, <laughs> as he's like trying to get fish out of the river, um, and failing, uh, multiple times, uh, uh, and then resorting to shooting at fish mm-hmm. in the river, which is, uh, what, what, what gets the authorities alerted <laughs> to where they're hiding out. Um, so to see that kind of like, it never feels like, oh, we're patching something up. It feels like this is an absolutely necessary element of the movie that, that makes it a masterpiece and that makes, um, Sissy SpaceX character that I think the more interesting of, of the pair, uh, and definitely the more like depth and, and sort of like uh, room to grow and, and, and sort of change and, and recontextualize and, and consider things. Um, but, uh, but I, I think it's the best voiceover that's ever been. Actually, I, I think the best voiceover ever in a movie is probably, uh, Chris Klein in Election. That would be my number one. Um, <laughs> I love it so this, much. <laughs> this is a close number two though. And, and in a way that's like, uh, yeah, it's one of those things that you're always taught as a crutch. And it's always sort of like, uh, critically assessed as that too. But, uh, I feel like there's more interesting ways to use voiceover that have not really ever been explored. And this is like a, a great sort of like reminder that like it can be this beautiful lyric poetic thing that is adding this layer of like weird comic juxtaposition to what what you're doing and uh the sort of internal lives of the character um and uh and yeah it's it's great more v every movie should have vo i think (laughs) the part where a a line that i wrote down is when they actually finally enter the titular badlands 
she says, Kit told me to enjoy the scenery, and I did. And it immediately <laughs> cuts to her reading a, a magazine, not looking up at the scenery at all. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so it's really, it, it is about the interplay between, like, the, the story that she is talent constructing for you and and seeing what actually happened like the the way that those two are so rarely actually in agreement about like the state of what's going on is like fascinating yes (laughs) another voiceover moment that i just want to highlight that uh made me laugh so hard uh this most recent view and everyone that i've had is um after they murder uh holly's father they are taking off and it's another one of those moments where Maybe we're filling in a beat that is missing or something, but she's at her school and she's getting all of her stuff. And she says, Kit made me get my books from school so I wouldn't fall behind. And it's just like, <laughs> what What are you talking about? It's such a weird – and she's like on the same page with him. And it's this moment of like – she also mentions that she could probably hide in the boiler room if she really didn't want to be going on this. And, but she's – you know, th- this is when her fate is sort of like I feel like I'm inexplicably mm-hmm. you know, tied to Kit and making that decision. Whereas like – on its face, like her walking out of school with the books, I probably would have just accepted that as like a piece of whatever visual narrative information. But like the layer of VO makes it so much like funnier and richer and, and weirder uh, too, because the sort of way that their minds are thinking and like in weird simpatico together is just so bizarre. And that's so much better than seeing Kit deliver that dialogue to her like 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 her her yes. delivery is so <laughs> is so wistfully well like so wistful and idealistic and uh i don't know it's just it's kind of magic this is not necessarily the moment to introduce this but there is a moment in badlands that makes me laugh so hard which is after they arrive in the badlands uh, martin sheen pulls a gun out of his jeans and shoots a football point blank <laughs> and then like punches the air out of it um and I and I don't know where that came from. I don't know who cooked that up. Uh, I'm sure it was floated. Malik told him to run with it. But like, what a what a funny image and what a weird childish moment of killing time and 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 taking out aggression. It's just the movie has like all of these really striking images that you haven't really seen anywhere else, and they don't always have like a a fully articulable meaning, but just taken as a whole, there's nothing like it. It's like in, during a brief lull where he hasn't murdered anybody in a bit and you just get a right. sense that he's like, I haven't shot this in a while. I miss it. I'm going to fucking kill this football. I'm so glad we're talking about this moment. It's my, I think it's my favorite. It's definitely the thing that when I first saw the movie, I was like, this is one of my favorite movies <laughs> yeah, yeah. ever made. Um, cause there's so, it's, it's everything that's great about the movie is like, it's a microcosm of like, it's, it's, it's weird. It's dark. Um, Sissy SpaceX, uh, VO on this image is, is explaining why he's doing it is, is that he said it was excess baggage. And so there's like a weird joke to it. And just like the, this, that, that look in his eyes as he pounds the air out of it is so dark and weird. And like, you see these wheels turning of like, what is the next chapter in this myth that I'm writing for myself and like running out of ideas, you know, like <laughs> running around in a Cadillac, hitting cows, <laughs> uh, camping out. Uh, it's, it's, it's such a weird, like, and, and like a precursor to like so much sort of like 
weird i don't know like indie comedy too in a way like that's sort of like it's dark but whimsical and like weird and there's a character who doesn't really understand the emotions or lack of emotions that he's going through and trying to grapple with it and his place in the world um but it's like it's it's farcical and funny and, and weird at the same time you know it's just uh yeah, it's a, it's a it's a perfect movie moment. It makes and it's something. Yeah, it, yeah. That sorry, the thing you just said makes me think of a movie that we've talked about on podcasts before that I know we both love. I'm not sure how you feel about it, Bethy, but Bottle Rocket, mm-hmm. I feel, is deeply indebted to Badlands, and uh, you know Wes Anderson finds a very different tone. Dignan is much less violent. He is uh, much more sympathetic, but like. Dignan is this this self mythologizing goof with big plans who says a lot of things that don't make sense uh and 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 you fear for him but you're also kind of laughing at him and I just think about so many moments in that movie that feel almost like a direct line from from moments in Badlands 100% and I also I like down to the sort of like trappings of like the you know kind of marimba soundtrack like the sort of like choral um choices that they have this very sort of like classical whimsical like I'm watching a school play type type tone um, to to uh, some of the things I, I think is definitely a precursor, but even stuff down to like the sort of the the posse interlude, which is like extremely funny um, and and varied. Like it's you know it's specifically like dry humor and like weird kind of like non sequitur dead end, but like filled with a kind of like official speak of like a child's idea of like how adults would talk. Like Holly says something like they brought in a famous detective from Chicago, <laughs> but he couldn't find any clues. And it's like, wait, he's like what? walking around like, in like a trench coat in the middle of like yeah. Texas. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's just, it's, like, it's such like a showy sort of like, uh, faint towards like the idea of like having a grown up's idea of like what's going on, but it's sort of in this fractured sort of like childlike way of looking at thing, which like I think Dignan has, I think, um, he, you know, Max has in Rush. Well, it's definitely a through line. And, and, and yeah, I mean, I think that Wes Anderson was like one of those, the, the reason this was such a light bulb moment for me is like being able to see. Oh, like th- there's, there's this lineage of like tone and like it doesn't just sort of like come from nowhere, but it's like built on this sort of like traditions of exploring these themes. Um, and, uh, yeah, they both do really well. I'll say, I think the difference between this movie and like other Wes Anderson, like self mythologizing heroes is that and and the the sort of like posse lawman scene sort of speaks to that as well as this movie does seem to sort of be trying to say something about America as a whole whereas Wes Anderson movies are only ever trying to talk about Wes Andersonlandia like it's it does have like a sort of parallel universe energy the Wes Anderson movies and which i enjoy but it is a little 100%. bit like we're in an alternate world whereas this movie like uh, everything that these people do is fucking weird but it's also like makes sense within the world they live in like everyone in this movie loves to like play shoot guns like the the like deputy that catches kit at the end is almost the exact same guy as kit and it's like well if he had just become a cop then none of this would have happened he could have just <laughs> killed for fun uh and got paid for it or like and then they like make a point of showing all of these korean war soldiers that are about to ship off who are in the same airfield as kit at the end the lawmen are the same even like 
Holly's dad, like, shoots her dog to, like, punish her for going out with somebody. Like, everybody in this movie is, like, mildly indifferent to the notion of the suffering of others. And, and like, and is very into uh, politeness and indifferent to the the notion of death. It's, like, right. everyone's vibe in this movie. And wrapped up in the sort of ideals of, like, the American sort of dream, I guess, for lack of a better term, of, like, you know, her dad is very specifically painting this sort of, like, classic Americana kind of picture um, mm-hmm. on the billboard that he's, he's in, and it's, like, this utopic land of, you know, plenty and fruit and and, and vegetables, and then the surrounding shot is just barren, you know, dirt land, like, all, as far as the eye can see. And so, you know, there's the, 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 these ideas of, like, a, a new generation kind of, like, rolling through with, like, dead postmodern eyes and kind of just like running roughshod over uh 50s uh american idealism and then the sort of like yeah like chasing fame i mean it's 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 funny that it's like i think that's why this endures so much because it's everything that this is about is like still like the most essential american thing you know of 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 uh violence and notoriety and, and influence and, and and mattering and greatness and, and and all of these sort of things that have these dark sort of like corners to them when you sort of just worship and and and, and chase after them without sort of uh thought as to you know who you are or, or why um and uh that's not my America. <laughs> would, would you say that Kit predicted uh, influencer culture? I think that I think that Kit and Holly are influencers. I think that they are lifestyle influencers with no social media, and they are leaving behind forty fives and weird recordings and uh, trying to create uh, sort of lasting uh, artifacts of their uh, of, of their journey together. They bury a time capsule <laughs> at one point that they. Uh, optimistically guess that a thousand years in the future someone might come upon and, and really wonder. Um, and, uh, you know, he puts on his hat when he gets arrested because he, he knows that there's going to, you know, this is his moment. Like I, it's all so curated in the chase. He's, he's literally checking his James Dean quaff, James Dean's quaff, like <laughs> while he's like racing away from the cops in the, in the climax of the movie. Um, I think it's like very sort of, um, it, 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 it pinpoints this specific thing that like is, it's, it's still the thing, I think, you know, and I, I think that why, it, that's why it still feels, um, so modern and, and was so influential, um, I think across like, you know, lovers on the run movies is kind of like a genre, but, uh, I, I, I think that there's not a single one that came after this that isn't like, indebted to it in some way um and you know the, the, you look at like there yeah there's there's a ton to to tie this into the to the voiceover conversation before we leave that entirely my favorite line in the entire movie is in vo and it kind of unlocks the themes and the characters of the movie for me and i'm i'm going to butcher it but holly is speaking in voiceover and explains that kit Every time he signs his name, he fakes a signature so that people can't look at that signature and forge important documents in his name. Uh, And that is 
That is so funny and <laughs> stupid, but also beautifully encapsulates who these people are. It's like he everywhere he goes, he leaves this 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 fake trail, this sort of detritus of false identity. But but in signing a, a false signature everywhere, there is no real signature. There is nothing for people to compare it back to. When he eventually fills out those important documents himself and signs whatever the real kit signature is, it's not going to match this record. And that's that's like what this character is. It's just that the, the loss of an essential self uh, in the face of all of this weird affectation. <laughs> I think my favorite line in the movie to to swerve a little bit is after kit shoots kato holly just asks is he upset (laughs) (laughs) yeah he's gut shot and dying holly i think he's a bit miffed about that incredible when when holly asks the woman on the farm uh, about her partner who's about to be murdered do you love him Holly, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah, just small <laughs> what, talking. In what way will this line of I- inquiry affect the outcome? It seems like it will not. This is something that it ties into all of the stuff that we've been talking about. But like when they leave uh, the rich guy's house, they're like ostensibly like fleeing the scene of a crime. She waits for him to open her door. She won't open the door and get in herself. She's been taught, no, I don't open my door. Somebody has to open that for me. And he, like, gets all the way to his door, sees that she's not getting in, like, runs back and opens the door for her. Yeah. Kit is a real gentleman. He also opens the door for Cato after he shoots him in the stomach uh, to go and sit down inside of his house. He sort of catches up with them, which is another weird, one of those weird sort of, like, burst of violence and then just like a very strange kind of pace of like how the scene unfolds because he's slowly dying she's making small talk with him these other two people show up but yeah he runs up and opens the door for him and like puts it puts him inside and you you see like the wheels turning of like oh there's i have this self-vision of myself where like i'm doing what's necessary for survival but i'm a gentleman and like i am charming and i have to do things like the right way his system of you know the lies that he tells and the sort of like stories that he tells other people as they go it's it's so weird and and, and fractured but it's it's uh you know it, it genuinely works and like you do genuinely like kind of root for him like i don't know if like that is like worth talking about but like i i think it's always like a complicated thing where you are not just unabashedly but i think he's the sort of character that like i root for kind of despite (laughs) the fact that he's uh, a psycho and like i i like rooting for him even though i i feel extremely weird about it and i think that the movie wants me to feel weird about it but uh that those kind of touches of him like running back over to open the door like it's stupid and it's like you know just based in this like again like weird old-fashioned american sort of view of like chivalry or or gender roles and uh but because he adheres to them with like this verve and gusto you're like is is a good kid like you know and like and and the cops at the end wishing him well it's like it's funny because you understand it you know the 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 deputy throws his hat out the window and then by the end he's saying good luck and 
Kit says, thanks. And then he says, no, I really mean it. And he's, and Kit says, I know you do. It's like, it, it's like a, a moment that happens like a beat longer than it should. And with a sincerity, that's just absurd after everything we've seen. But Kit always has this sort of like, you know, charming way about him. Um, that is, uh, I, yeah, you totally get why Martin Sheen like was thought he was like a good guy <laughs> or or at least uh worthy of more empathy than the the film uh in the in its final form showed to him i'm with you you know i i, I think kid is obviously a very bad person but i also often root for him and find him charming and like you're saying the the movie literally ends with all of these cops kind of celebrating him as a kind of american hero and the movie has this weird metatextual nuance that's like it's not kit's fault for being raised in an america that values really terrible ideas of heroism it's like i don't know like we idolize like so many war criminals as being heroes who like do america's bidding abroad even though they're like killing people and doing terrible things like he's just kind of doing what america tells him to do he's being a narcissistic piece of shit cowboy like can you blame him for growing up here? That was kind of something that Colin and I were talking about a couple weeks ago is that you don't hear about like a medieval serial killer because those were just knights. Like you could just go on a crusade and do it for God. Right. Like you, there was a, like a quote unquote healthy outlet for every person with like murderous tendencies back in the day. It's only recently as the overall rate of violence has gone down that the people with murder in their hearts don't have like the socially approved outlet for that. Would Kit have gone on a killing spree if uh, Holly's dad was just a little bit cooler? Like if he was just like, <laughs> that's the Come real on question. Down, bud. Um, well, in the actual killings that the movie is based on, uh, the, the Holly character is based on this woman named Carol Ann girl named Carol Ann. And, Charles Starkweather did kill a gas station attendant before he killed all of Carol Ann's family. So he, he was Got like, it, it would have, shit would have popped off eventually, but okay, how? I do want to talk a little bit more about this idea that I've seen, not just from my friend Sarah, but like in, I think, Tin House and a couple other places that uh, Kit actually has feelings. Like he's not a sociopath because he has like love in his heart. Uh, but Holly, who just play acts, even like losing her virginity, like is the one who actually fits like the, the psychopath test, like the, the, the checklist that you do to determine whether or not someone is a sociopath, like the, the author of that checklist, uh, Dr. Robert Hare was like, no, 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 Holly's the psycho. (laughs) Kit just has borderline personality disorder. He's. He's fucked up, but Holly's the one who's, like, devoid of human sentiment and emotion. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I buy that reading, um, and I think that I have more empathy for her because we don't really know Kit's circumstances other than the fact that he, like, is a greaser and, like, maybe, like, knows some people that he he tells her at one point that he knows some people that he'd like to rub out or maybe that's just inferred via voiceover. But we don't really know a lot of the circumstances 
of his life. He's like a weird cipher or an alien or something like that. Um, and, uh, Holly, you know, doesn't have a, she lost her mom and her dad is clearly a psycho and like murders her dog in front of her, uh, which is absolute psychotic behavior um but yeah the whole there's a, a sequence uh when early in the movie when she and kid are just like sort of starting to hang out and make out under the bleachers and do classic like americana like lovebird type stuff where she says the i i didn't even get in trouble um one the only time that i got in trouble that that entire you know time that kid and i were together was when i threw out my fish because it got sick and she like just drops a, a catfish in the garden and it's like kind of writhing around and and that's your first sort of like, oh, wait, like what? Like, like what? what? <laughs> What's going on? What's going on here? And it's I, I think some of the most chilling stuff in the movie is, you know, we, we mentioned it earlier, but that that long walk over um, to the field where he locks that young couple um, in, 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 in the in the barn and, and, and shoots at them and how just excruciating uh you know, empty and, 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 and banal and, and ordinary, this conversation that she's sort of, uh, instigating against this victim's will. Um, she's worried that they're about to die and she's asking her these sort of like daydreamy, like, are, do you, how, how hard are you crushing on your boyfriend type questions and sort of explaining, um, that Kit is like, oh, you, you know, he's, 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 he's kind of going through a thing, but, you know, don't we all kind of feel a little confused sometimes? <laughs> like he's sort of like explaining it away. And it's, it's, it's absolutely, I, I, I think it's like the most sort of like troubling, uh, psychologically like thing in, in, in the movie, that entire sequence. And of course it's like, she's poking Kato with a stick too. And like these weird kind of like things where she's so detached and just, you know, she, she mentions at one point that she feels like she's sort of floating above the earth and like kind of like completely like not within it and just sort of like watching these events unfold. And that's, that's the sense that you, you get like through her performance and through this, you know the weird clashing voiceovers of like saying this deep stuff about how she feels like she's floating above the earth and when we crash back down to reality and they're talking in the car it's like how are you feeling like I'm pretty good i'm tired like okay i'm tired too and like that's that's like the extent of most of their conversations it's so it's, it's so boring and ordinary and, and 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 silly um but uh I don't know. I, I don't think she has it. I, I don't know if she had it within her for the, 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 the violence no. that, that kid is capable of. So I, my, my, yeah, my needle leans a little closer to his side. I mean, he's building motherfucking like Ewok defense systems out in the goddamn forest. And like, I mean, this is a guy. That's that, a pretty incredible treehouse we should mention. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like we haven't talked enough about the Swiss family <laughs> Robinson stuff, which is, the, it's really the first big sort of like act two turn where it's like, okay, like we've sort of set up the idea of like this Americana sort of James Dean guy and like the young twirler and like they, she, you know, she's troubled at home and he kills her dad and now they're on the run. And, you know, for me and for the first time watching this, I don't, I don't think I thought they were going to build a Swiss family Robinson tree house like in the next sequence. And I was like, this is whimsical and delightful and like it's utopic in a way that like 
makes you feel so weird because it's coming right off the hot heels of this flame sequence that it's like, it feels like you're in hell. It's like the craziest cinematic fire you've ever seen. And then they're like living in the treetops and hanging a painting in their treehouse that they took from her dad's house and building like legit Ewok traps. Like if this shit got run up on by an at at like it would be it would be lights out for uh for the stormtroopers like he would he would take them all down and he's doing cool slides into trap doors uh uh doing like little uh, drills like running with his rifle and like wearing his t-shirt like a bandana on his yeah chanting classic just you know boys adventure stuff uh and she's think, just putting on makeup like in a field she's like squatting in the tall grass and like putting on eyeshadow while yeah, she's like it, doing little drills everybody is just sort of yes and they're barefoot yeah. and feral and dancing and it's 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 such a weird <laughs> it's such a weird concoction of of vibes uh and uh i mean i i I, knowing that people were injured um during the fire scene i'm i'm glad that no one got hit by that spike ball (laughs) uh pendulum thing because that 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 thing looks insane like i yeah that's thank god they steered clear of that malik was you know he doesn't do interviews anymore he doesn't he hasn't done interviews since days of heaven but contemporaneous to the release of this movie he did this huge interview with sight and sound and in that interview, he talks about how Swiss Family Robinson was a major touchstone for him in making this movie, and also the Hardy Boys and other weird, I read that, yeah. yeah, yeah, and and yeah, I, so yeah, yeah, totally. And so w- when I'm watching this movie, I know I've mentioned PTA already, and I think they're fundamentally different filmmakers, but I think they're similar in that they're incredibly unique, incredibly unique uh, filmmaking voices who filter really broad ideas through their crazy prism. Like I think about. PTA talking about how punch drunk love was to him his idea of a happy Madison movie like he really wanted to make a happy Madison Sandler movie and that's the thing that came out it's like punch drunk's my favorite movie maybe and it does not feel happy Madison this is equally a bizarre interpretation of the Swiss family Robinson but you can also kind of see how Malik looked at that and was like no this is this is my version of this. I'm a philosophy guy. I'm a really artful filmmaker. This is my Swiss Family Robinson. One hundred percent. Yeah, it's. I mean, that's what he's so great at is like playing with this classic Americana iconography, and I think it, it taps into that that sort of like spirit. Um, and it, it's just like it, I, I'm in such awe of just like the amount of sort of like touchstones and things and ideas like sort of working together at once in this movie in a way that I don't really feel like qualified or capable of actually like, you know, talking in, in, in any sort of like, uh, uh, deeper or special way about, but I, other than just like c- complete awe because it's so fully formed as an idea and it's like the perfect kind of like, cultural touchstone for for this character too to have like this idyllic ideal of like how he can go live and you know we can assume that you know maybe kit picked up uh uh swiss family robinson in in a trash can somewhere and and, (laughs) and read a couple chapters and was like that's that sounds cool to me um but you know obviously like sort of recast as this sort of like thieves hideout um um and uh uh with uh where 
men are slaughtered and <laughs> shot in the back. You know, it, it's not even like uh, a fun, adventurous sort of like battle that takes place. It's, it's a slaughtering. Um, so the way that he kind of sets you up for that stuff and then sort of uh, subverts it with these these weird flashes of, of, of violence and strange tone. It's uh, it, it's cool. I think we need more. I think we need more people building tree houses uh, in, in movies. <laughs> I, I, I never. Never upset when I see a good treehouse in, in a film. Like I said, this would have paired well with Ernest Scared Stupid, another great treehouse movie. <laughs> um, I, there's there's one question I want to pose for both of you, and it's uh, what do you make of not the ending ending, but Kit's choice to give it up, to to stop running, to shoot out his tire, but then say like, oh, you guys got me. I had a flat. I can't run anymore. What is that? Is is it the that he that he knew that being captured was part of this myth that he was making and the time was right? Is it that he ran out of ideas beyond that point? I I, I have I, I understand in kind of in an articulable way why that character would do that, but I have a hard time putting it to words. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's I think it's a little bit of a lot of this sort of like improv style of like how he's making these decisions along the way but you know it it comes right after the moment that holly tells him that she's out and i think that for him having the us against the world kind of like we are our destinies are intertwined and like this is what is like special about me and and my story and like there's this sort of like the 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 rationale for everything is like you know he's protecting her he's holding the door open for her he's sort of like he's this there there it's us it's us against the world and as soon as he loses that element i think that he understands that his story is is over and and that he has to sort of like regain control of the narrative and so he everything he does after that is about sort of like writing his ending and like and 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 putting his mark on it and building a pile of rocks in the road and saying this like is this is where happened. you caught me it's the which is the most pathetic thing in the entire movie and you're just like you, you no one no one is ever going to give a shit about that pile of rocks like it goes unremarked upon like it's a stretch of highway in the absolute void of the american west and it's it's never going to matter to anyone and he he carefully builds it you know rock by rock painstakingly it's the last sort of like act he he has uh, as as a sort of like free free man on the run um and and puts on the uh, his uh, stupid fedora that he stole from the, the rich guys house, which is amazing um but i think that 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 when holly leaves him it's like that's a moment where he's like okay time to i knew that i was gonna have to write my ending at some point and uh you know he says that thing when he says sees a helicopter like oh i i had a feeling that like today might be the day and i think it's just like okay time to time to do the big finish and uh you know he's a showman and uh he 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 gave out his his lighter to eager (laughs) eager cops great cop stuff (laughs) you want a comb too (laughs) <laughs> and then he, but he takes time, the time after that to learn the names of the two cops who, who caught him, so that he can like thank them by name, for like doing yes. right by him. In yes, he says that they're heroes in his eyes, yeah. and he's going to spread the, the tale of their well, heroism. But in a way that's like you're special because you caught me, and like I'm, aren't I so special? Mm-hmm. And like are you know, and and uh, yeah, it's it's incredible that the cop remarks 
that they do the whole James Dean thing, which has been like a constant sort of like thing throughout the entire movie. And it's as plain as day if you're looking at it, but ev- the fact that everyone makes a big deal about it is like, it, 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 it's, it's, it's the weird like punchline of this entire movie, you know, that, that this maniac could go on like this killing spree that he is sort of like making up as he goes along. But because he sort of like has the veneer of like a movie star esque sort of like, guy on the run and this charming criminal sort of like persona that we've mythologized through um uh you know american popular culture and folklore that everyone is just like this guy's all right like (laughs) i like hanging out with this guy hey good luck man and it's 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 such like uh it's it's so it's just so real unfortunately it's so it's so real and weird um but uh yeah yeah. speaking as somebody who uh went out of her way to go to the McDonald's where ODB was arrested, like at the dumpster of, (laughs) uh, I think people will be going back to that sort of Karen in the highway. Like there's no piece of historical minutia too small that someone isn't going to go visit it. I think he's right that people are going to want to know where it was. Uh, But to answer your question, Thomas, I, I do agree with Kevin that, um, it's mostly, I think, because he was motivated by Holly. Like, he walks off his job at the beginning because he sees her on his route. And he's like, I would rather right. go talk to her than do this job. So if she's gone, then the motivation is gone. But then there's also the, like, extra textual reason that um, Charles Starkweather did eventually surrender because he thought he had been shot. Like... <laughs> The mm. cop shut out his window and the glass cut his ear and he thought he was dying. And so he turned himself in and like asked for medical attention. And like at the trial, the cop basically was like, <laughs> who is this? He called him a yellow belly, I think, like in in testimony in court, called him a yellow belly. <laughs> Look, man, if I had a dollar for every time a cop had shot out the window of my car and a shard of glass had cut my ear, I wouldn't... Uh... I wouldn't need all the income that I get from this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> from uh, robbing all of these uh, Midwestern oil magnates or whatever the fuck. Yeah, that's part of it, but I have a diverse portfolio. Sure, um, sure. I like I like that the movie ends with cops looking really dopey. It's like maybe second only to Superbad and kind of like laughing at these embarrassing police officers. But like these guys clearly see him as a kind of hero that they want to be and they can't help but admire him and and malik has this like really cynical and kind of pathetic view of the american police and i think that plays well today (laughs) i like it i hope no cops are listening if you are i live at um uh, i live in beverly hills i think we did it you think we recorded an episode of a podcast? I think we did. Our oh, podcast? Yeah. That rocks. Kevin, is there anything we're missing that you would, you'd have to say before we... Uh... Um, I do want to say R.I.P. Kato because he seemed like a really cool guy. He knew that kid was fucked up the entire time and there wasn't really anything he could do about it. <laughs> uh, he had a pet spider. He had a gentle soul. Um, and that, that one really got me. Um, I, uh, I also just want to quickly highlight the, the rich man's, uh, house sequence, 
when they go and uh, just chill at this like random dude's house in, in Tulsa or something and uh, ring his bells and touch all of his shit and rearrange the furniture. Uh, and it's preloaded with the sense that like at any moment Kit is going to kill these two people because that's the sort of pattern we've seen. He doesn't end up doing it in a way that feels like uh, I, I, I don't know. Not, not, not endearing necessarily, but like a welcome sort of reprieve from, from things. Uh, and, uh, but, but soaked with dread the entire time. And I, I think it's like a really cool sequence. Um, and also, uh, since we're near the end, I think this has one of the best final, uh, uh, lines or final exchanges, uh, in, in, in movies when, uh, uh, the cop says, you know, Kate, you're something else. And he says, do you think they'll take that into consideration? And that's the last line of the movie. Uh, it's, it's a- just absolutely pitch, pitch perfect. And, um, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know if we're ever going to see another movie that like comes close to feeling like this. It will be maybe new, new versions of it, but, um, as it exists now, just like a really special, um, gem of a movie um to watch at a bar or at home with your uh loved ones uh yeah i mean there is one uh famous imitator of this movie which is true romance which apes the score and of course uh tries to lift the characters tony scott very much does his own thing i i continue to like that movie even though there's a waning critical appreciation for it but uh it is nothing like badlands yeah but rocks rocks yes definitely Butt rocks. Um, I wanted one last thing that I want to make sure we say is it's very funny every time Martin Sheen goes, Ho! Right before he shoots somebody who's <laughs> running away from him, he goes, Ho! And then shoots people. That amuses me. Uh, and when, when Holly is like musing about whether the man she will one day marry is thinking about her right now while she's like in the arms of the guy that you would think she's on some sort of like ride or die folia de blood packed with she's already a planning her exit and that is bone chilling <laughs> <laughs> uh this this fucking rocked this is about as much fun as i could expect to have on a podcast kevin if people want to keep the party going uh and find you on twitter what's uh what's that look like uh yeah you can you can find me at kevin t uh costello uh on on twitter um i'm on letterbox too i think it's just kevin costello i'm I'm watching movies on there a lot um yeah come come say what's up call me a a dumbass for uh my inability to sort of (laughs) wrap my head around why i like this movie so much Kevin's letterbox is great it it splits a it, it strikes a perfect balance between being either something that makes me laugh out loud just like a, a really understated goofy one-line joke about whatever the movie is or it's deeply thoughtful and either way I love it Bethy are you Thanks, man <laughs> Bethy are you on the internet do you have Twitter does the show have Twitter or Instagram the show has Instagram the show has Twitter that's a movie bar pod on Twitter and movie bar underscore pod on Instagram. I'm on Instagram as at Bethy Squires. And- Which is the real show, if you must know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it's if you want to see a lot of rugs, that's where you go. <laughs> and then at Bethy BSQU on Twitter. Thomas, what about you? Uh, I'm on Twitter. You can find me at at handsome underscore pal. Uh, and also, if you follow the show... We split duties. Some of those tweets are mine. 
We'll most never tell the, you which. Well, most of the tweets are yours, Sick. and most of the Instagrams are mine. That sounds right. That sounds right. But it's a little bit of country, a little bit of rock and roll. I agree with that. Kevin, thanks so much, man. This rocked. Had a great Thank time. Thank you guys for having me. Uh, I, I, I'll, I'll drink a beer and talk, 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 flex with you two <laughs> anytime. It's been a real, it's been a real pleasure. All right, Bethy, what's our, what's our weekly sign off? <laughs> our normal weekly sign off is the same as it always is, which is, hey, did you guys know that was Terrence Malick playing the architect who visits the rich guy? Uh, and ah. the answer at three, two, one. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yes, I did. Yeah, okay, good. Watching Movies at the Bar is edited by Colin Jenkins with show art by Lindsay Farrell and that theme you hear at the top, that's Quentin Mulligan. Quentin Mulligan.